The Culture Guy Podcast. With your host, Christian, also known as The Culture Guy. And today we have a guest that's been around half the globe. He's from Europe. He's lived in Southeast Asia. Went all the way to Australia. Welcome back, everybody. New episode of the Culture Guy podcast today with a guest who's originally from Germany, and he's made quite a journey in his life despite his young age. Before we go listen to my interview with Tim, I would encourage you to take a look at the website. We made some upgrades to theculturemastery.com, namely in the tools section. Go to the tools tab on the website, and in addition to the Globe Smart and the bank code, we now also have country navigator a super robust um, profiling and e-learning tool that you should definitely take into account for your endeavors across cultures without further ado this is tim reddick and we're talking while he's still in germany but this man has seen half of the world let's hear him and welcome tim reddick or is it reddick how, how do we say your name Tim? welcome christian uh, Rettig, uh, that's correct, yes. Rettig, Rettig is which, correct. which I'm, I'm a southern German, I roll my R's, it's, I would say Rettig, which gives <laughs> it away, you are originally German, aren't you? <laughs> yes, I am Christian, I uh, come from the east, uh, from the west of Germany, mm -hmm. uh, the Ruhrgebiet region, and yeah, I've been living there for the first, let's say, 18 years of my life before I moved overseas. Now, uh, the, the Ruhrgebiet, being German myself and having not having grown up in that area, I've always struggled to explain what the Ruhrgebiet is. To people in the United States, it's fairly easy to explain. I tell them it's what used to be the, um, the coal and steel belt of the United yes. States. That's what the Ruhrgebiet used to be. Is that still an appropriate explanation for that area? How, how would you describe that area to, to people who are not familiar with it? Yeah, well, it used to be the coal and steel production area. Um, nowadays, it's slightly different. I mean, the big companies have passed on. We don't have a lot. Of, we don't have any coal anymore, but we do have steel production here. Um, ThyssenKrupp is one of the biggest steel producers in the world, and they're mm -hmm. still around. Um, but uh, now you can find a lot of nature here um, nowadays. You know, they are uh, still trying to put a lot of parks around. They have a lot of forests and. It's not really the image that you have in your mind that all here is just dark steel production. Right, right. And uh, for those of you who've never been to that area, if you're ever visiting Germany, of course you're going to go to Berlin. Of course you're going to go to all the the touristy spots. Uh, let me uh, let me encourage you um, give the Ruhrgebiet a try because it it has developed marvelously from what it used to be some 20 years ago. Um, definitely worth worth a stop um, for at least a day or two. Now, Tim, the reason why we're talking here today is we met each other online, and that 
in this day and age, this doesn't sound as weird anymore as it used to, but we met each other online <laughs> and uh, I, I saw your name and you blog quite a bit on, on, on your blog, Tim Reddick dot, is it dot net, right? It's Tim Reddick dot net. Dot net yes. Yeah. Y'all find the, the link to, to Tim's blog in the show notes. So make sure to check it out. Um, and Tim was kind enough to put together an article that is called the top 10 intercultural uh communication blogs and, communication blogs right and and our blog made it on that list so thank you tim and that that that's how we got to know each other and um i quickly i did a little online research and i found out that tim even though he's german he does not live in germany anymore and even though you're fairly young compared to my age you've you have some some significant experience of living and working abroad why don't you share with our audience uh what your stops and steps and, and, and stints abroad where? Uh, yeah, thanks, Christian. First of all, I want to say that, uh, yes, your blog has uh, really been worth putting on that list. I really appreciate all your content and thanks for that. Thank you. And um, now um, to talk a little bit about my background. Well, um, after my high school, I decided to do a gap year and that was in Indonesia for a year. Mm. Um, I was a voluntary English teacher at a um, garment training center in Indonesia. And um, this essentially that started to kick off a little bit my interest in living overseas. Um, I then uh, stayed in Indonesia. I found that one year of living in a country is clearly not enough to learn the culture, to understand the place, to get a feeling for the place. Well, three years isn't enough either, but it's a beginning. So I stayed there three years and then uh, that was followed by two and a half years in Australia and now more than one year to one year and a half in Iran, actually, which is where I'm currently living in Tehran. Nice. So we're talking right now. You're not in, in Tehran right now. You're in Germany as we record this. However, you'll be going back to Tehran in, in a couple of days now. Um, First of all, coming from Western Europe and being raised in the German school system, and then you, you take the decision to go abroad on your gap year, I think it's fair to say that Indonesia isn't necessarily on top of everyone's list when you go abroad for a year to teach. Um, what made you choose Indonesia? What made you choose Jakarta? Well, um... Indonesia uh, was sparked by uh, a brief trip uh, to Indonesia, actually. Um, I was about 17 and I did a one month long um, volunteering service at the orphanage in Indonesia, uh, which then sparked my interest to explore the country more. And I have to say that that was really worthwhile for me. Um, Indonesia is still a country that I would consider my second home. Uh, it's very fascinating. Um, the collective uh, culture of a Southeast Asian country, the collective spirit, the uh, warm people, um, always being together, um, a corporate environment that feels like family, not like a factory. Um, there's a lot of factors that are really fascinating to me about uh, Indonesia. And um, until today, I, I really like to come back um, I was living with an Indonesian family for a year, uh, a year as well, and they have really treated me like uh, their own son, and 
Uh, I really love the con keeping up the connections that I have with this country uh, now and in the future as well. Nice. Did you were you yeah. able to pick up the Indonesian language while you were there? Yeah, that, you see, that's uh, one of the interesting parts. So um, I was in Indonesia for three years, and um, yes, I learned uh, Bahasa, um, but and by far not to the extent that I uh, wanted to. Uh, my first year was in a English. Uh, I was as a working as an English teacher, as I said, and uh, there we had an obligation to speak English on the campus from morning to night. And I was working uh, 12 hours uh, a day at the time. Um, so that was kind of an excuse for me not to become as good as I wanted to. But then I was two years longer in Indonesia. And somewhat um, uh, that first one year of not being forced to learn the language uh, makes you lazy. Because it is only obligation that really makes you learn. It's only being forced to learn that makes you learn. And um, I was quite disappointed with myself that my Bahasa got stuck at a not very impressive level. And one of the reasons why I then, um, after my stay in Australia, chose to go to Iran is because I wanted to challenge myself to become fluent in a language in a relatively short period of time. I wanted to prove to myself that I'm able to do that. And that was one of the reasons why I ended up going to Iran. Mm, nice. Now, before we go to Iran, um, so you spent... Did I hear that right? Three years total in, in Indonesia, and then how long in Australia? Um, a little bit over two and a half, I would say. Where in Australia? Two and a half you, years. Where in Australia did you live? That was in Br that was in Brisbane. That Brisbane. was in Brisbane. Okay. Now, um, explain to to our audience. Um, you, you mentioned already that Indonesia or Southeast Asian cultures are a lot more collectivist than the more individualistic cultures of of the so-called Western world. How was that then for you as a Westerner who was fully immersed in this collectivist spirit in Indonesia? Uh, moving further on to Australia, back into a very individualistic culture, did that stand out to you even more than it would have um, coming from Germany directly to Australia? How would you describe that? Um, well, let's start with the first part, um, moving to a collective uh, culture, I guess. Um, well, the, one of the things that most fascinates me, and I've hinted that in my previous sentences, is that um, working in an environment in Indonesia, um, when you're in an office there, you're not um, completely just in a work environment. They perceive uh, the office as a family um, instead of uh, perceiving it as a factory. So basically what that means is you're not obliged to, to, to function as a robot. You're not obliged to be there on this time and uh, leave at this time. You're not obliged to always deliver on time. In fact, people come very late. Uh, sometimes uh, uh, in Indonesia, coming two hours late is not an exception. Mm -hmm. um, and um, from a German perspective, I mean, we all... I guess have heard about German punctuality. That's uh, quite a different story. But uh, uh, this has advantages and disadvantages. Um, so for uh, quickly is that um, you know you're spending a lot of time in the office. Um, you are working slowly. You spend a lot of time talking to people. 
um, you spend a lot of time chatting away and not really being effective, but you spend more time in the office and your your um, coworkers become some sort of second family for you. Mm -hmm. So it's very different, uh, that workspace from uh, the German workspace. And I, I, I learned to appreciate it. I, I mean, uh, one of the most difficult things for Germans to deal with in Indonesia is this time issue. I mean, the difference between monochronic and polychronic time, uh, which basically says that, okay, in a monochronic culture, you get uh, this idea that you should always be punctual, but in a polychronic culture, you, you do different things at the same time and you don't take punctuality so seriously. Uh, now, the result of that was for me that, for example, in the, in the past, I had scheduled, uh, let's say, four meetings in a day. Um, and I would expect that I would arrive to them on time, I would leave on time, but in Indonesia, that's simply not possible. You should only maybe schedule two meetings in a given day. Uh, you should then move to the location. Uh, you should uh, basically stay there, find yourself an activity to do, wait for maybe one hour, two hours until the person arrives, um, and uh, basically then start the meeting. And the second meeting should be scheduled in the afternoon so that you have enough time uh, in, in case the delay is more than two or three hours, you know? Mm -hmm. So you have to find creative solutions for situations like these. And uh, it is uh, very different from being in Germany, but it's also very fascinating to me, these kind of differences. Now, you, you did this adjustment in, in your 20s. Um, yes. Where, where, well, I think, I don't want to overgeneralize, but it, it may be easier at, at that age to get used to a different set of normal, a different set of behaviors. Have you um, had a chance to see older foreigners, older expatriates in Indonesia who were struggling with exactly what you just described, that they were frustrated by uh, the concept of time in Indonesia, that they were irritated and, and uh, well, maybe not as productive as they wish they had been. <laughs> that's the that's the key word that you're mentioning here, productive, productivity. Mm -hmm. um, well, in Germany, we perceive productivity as the goal. And so people um, will say that, well, um, the Indonesian culture is mm, not as good as the German culture because um, we are, they are less efficient, less productive. Right. But what the people forget here is that this is not the goal in the Indonesian culture. This is simply not the goal. Uh, for example, a, a company in Indonesia uh, might be run by a um, by uh, one of the elder elder family members, and the goal here is to provide a living for the whole family. The goal is to provide a nice uh, environment that supports the family and people close to the family. Um, it has more of a benevolent spirit. So the goal of the people there is not productivity. Mm -hmm. Therefore, when we're saying that um, in Indonesia there's um, uh, less productivity and therefore my own culture is better than the other, that is simply not an argument that makes sense because right. of this fact that um, that's not the goal in the culture. You know, That's not what the people are looking for. And this is one of the problems that I see um, from people, for example, Western people that are coming to a country like Indonesia, they will say that, oh, you know, meetings in Germany are so much more efficient than they are in Indonesia. In Indonesia, they do a lot of laughing, they start late, they don't always um, 
complete their goals at the end of the meeting. And this is difficult for people to adjust to. Uh, but once you start realizing that, okay, well, this is actually not the goal here, um, then you start to um, actually think about, okay, what does this really mean here? I mean, um, it, it, it's, uh, not, it's not just with, with Asian cultures. You see that even within Western cultures. I've, I've had so many projects uh, where, where we, we dealt with Western Europeans and North Americans. And the assumption always was that, well, we are quite similar in our approach to work styles. And then it turned out they, they were not, far from it. And, and it's the it's, uh, first time uh, foreign assignees are, are quick to jump to that conclusion that, well, my work style is better than the foreigner's work style. My culture is superior to another culture. And that's always a dangerous path to, to, to walk down. I, I fully agree with you. Now, when you um, when you decided to to move on from Indonesia, despite um, having f fallen in love with the country and its its people, you um, you went not only to Australia. Now you went to Iran. Um, now, most people in the Western Hemisphere are not very knowledgeable of the the country and its its past, its historic relevance in in. In, in human culture altogether and and you you now live in in Iran that well let's put it this way the, the image of the country in the western world is is very limited now you have you've had a chance to see the country from the inside and and you've made it your home for now how how can you describe to to westerners what how the stereotype of that we may have of Iran is correct or maybe not correct how, how would you how would you characterize persian or iranian culture well you see um actually we have to distinguish here as well when we talk about stereotypes we're mm -hmm. talking about yeah, the younger generation and we're mm -hmm. talking about the older generation right the older generation was used to the time of the shah and the younger generation is uh, used to the current system and i think the images about iran differ quite uh, strongly, as I've seen in my own um, uh, experiences with dealing with people. But uh, yes, I mean, let's just take the this, this, the common stereotype that is done by the media. Uh, um, I think we don't really need to go much in detail into what that is. But um, well, the Iranian culture, um, it's again, um, it has a unbelievable focus on family um, the family is the key unit here um, it goes back to the um, kinship system of the past you know um, where basically uh, you would only trust people that are coming from your own uh, family background and um, you know uh, trust is extended to these uh, kinship networks and you can feel that still uh, quite a lot you know business is done a lot in family uh, business is done a lot uh, with people close to the family, family, friends, and uh, this has been extended uh, until today. But uh, generally speaking, uh, I would say that uh, Iran has been a fascinating place for me in terms of its hospitality. Um, this is one thing that you do hear from almost all travelers that are going to Iran. Uh, it is not uncommon, uh, especially when you're going to smaller cities, um, to be approached by a stranger um, offering you to uh, 
visit their home, inviting them you for inviting you for a lunch or a dinner, or inviting you to stay over at night. Um, it is uh, for someone like us uh, often difficult to imagine. I mean, if I would think that someone in Germany would come to me and say, "Oh, you're from another city. Why don't you sleep at my place tonight uh, right. so that you can uh, uh, experience the Iranian family life?" You see. Iranian people are very proud of their nation. They are proud of their history. They are proud of, uh, you know, um, the ancient past, of the ancient culture, and they want to share that with foreigners. And um, especially when you're going to small cities, I think everybody can experience that hospitality, uh, which is very fascinating um, thing to observe. I think. I recently came across a, a, a book review. I haven't bought the book yet, um, and I, I totally forgot I'm spacing now who, who actually uh, wrote it. It's, it's a photo. It's a collection of pictures, an architectural digest book of, of uh, Iran, and it's uh, a collection of pictures from inside Iranian homes. And what, yes. fasc what fascinated me about the book is that the whole layout of Iranian homes is completely different from, from that in the Western world. And it, it, it showcases how family life is structured and how social interactions are structured and how that is reflected in the architecture of the homes. How, how would you describe yes. that to, to outsiders? Uh, yes, in fact, uh, I mean, I'm not an expert. I'm not an um, architecture expert. Um, but yes, I, I have heard of it and I've seen it. Um, uh, in general, uh, Iranian homes have a, um, well, let's put it a uh, public, let's call it a public hall, uh, which is the place where um, official guests are not official, where guests are um, being taken care of. So this is the place that guests have access to that, you know, uh, there would be um, um, uh, some sort of uh, means to actually uh, eat and share food, share, um, uh, you know, everything that is done with, with guests. Um, and uh, this public hall is basically uh, uh, this, the realm of the men, right? Um, because in the in the in the Iranian culture, or well, let's put it, let's say Islamic culture, mm -hmm. um, uh, originally women were um, the ones who were taking care of the home, whereas the the men were the ones taking care of the public life, right? Right. So uh, essentially, uh, to the other rooms of the house, they would be in the back of the house, so that you don't get immediate access to the uh, to that places, because that was where. Uh, the women were, you know, uh, mm -hmm. because uh, public events were done between men. Gotcha. Until today, you can see. Until today, you can see this effect in the sense that the houses are still structured in that way. But of course, um, the sense that the women are, uh, you know, will stay in the in their own private rooms or in the kitchen or so. That's not the case anymore. Women participate very much in the Iranian life, public life. Uh, today and uh, they have a very strong role in Iranian society. They are very important in Iranian society nowadays when it comes to the workforce. Um, there's always a statistic that 52% uh, of the uh, people in universities are women in Iran or even uh, more. Wow. Uh, so that is not the case anymore, but this architectural uh, style has remained from the past. And, uh, you know, to some extent, 
this idea that there's a difference between the public realm and the private realm is still very strong in Iran. Um, people in public uh, may behave very differently than people in their private homes. Uh, there's still a very strong um, culture around that distinction. Uh, it's just different from the past, you know, yeah, the, um, it's, it's, it has changed quite significantly from that old traditional conservative image that we have in our heads, actually. What, what would you recommend to Westerners who are either planning to travel to Iran or maybe even consider doing business with Iran? If, if, if you're listening to this and you're... Your country that you are from is is open to um, allowing you to do business with Iran. As we know, not all Western countries are, are open to that. Now, if if someone were legitimately able to do business in Iran, what what would be some of the key pointers you would have for them? What what are the things that foreigners really need to pay attention to when doing business with Iran? Uh, you mean in the sense of. Um... Uh, obstacles or in the sense of things to keep in mind or uh, well, it could in, be in obstacles sense? or it could be uh, things that uh, just a tip from someone who's been there so do this don't do that maybe well i mean iran is one of these places where I, as i said to you i mean i have hinted that on this kinship uh, network mm -hmm. uh, trust is a very important issue and it's only people that are close to you that you really trust. But uh, interestingly, there is one thing that uh, is very important in Iran. Uh, once you are the friend of someone, that person gives you access to his whole network. Right, so you need a liaison I repeat that again. partner. So you need somebody uh, with an existing network in, in, the, the, in the work world or in the business world of Iran. If you befriend someone from within the network, then that network gets opened up to you. Is that right? Yes, very much so. I said to you, there's this kin this idea of the kinship network is still very strong in this country. Uh, and there is some sort of selective uh, trust. And this trust is basically, uh, you know, there are groups being formed around similarities, you know, people with sim similar social backgrounds, so, so similar status. And, you know, people are very selective in who they're dealing with. But once you have entered one person's uh, 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 area of trust, he will then introduce you to basically everyone he knows, you know. Mm -hmm. the Iranian people are, once you're close to you, they will be very uh, helpful. They will do everything they can and they will give you access to uh, almost their whole network. And so um, basically the way to enter Iran really is make that one connection because one connection will give you a hundred connections. That's nice. really... Um, uh, I think uh, how doing business in Iran has to be done. Um, there is no real other way to doing so. Uh, you can do that through a chamber of commerce. You know, the, the chamber can help you to establish contact, but uh, there are better ways. I mean, more um, personal ways uh, that can work better in Iran. Mm -hmm. um, just because of that, uh, you know, the level of trust that will quickly be established once you have entered somebody's network. Nice. Now, um, we're almost out of time, Tim. So let me um, yep. uh, let me part for this time. I'm sure I'm going to have you back on this program in the near future um, because you, I'm sure you have more and more stories to tell. And, and there's just not enough time in one episode for a podcast. Um, thinking back on all these interactions with Uh, cultures that were at first 
foreign and unfamiliar to you, what were some of the biggest faux pas that you committed and how, how did you recover from them? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, well, one of the, I mean, of course, the first time overseas is always uh, some of the hardest. You're not used to that. And so um, I'm just uh, thinking back to uh, my time early, early on as a, as a new young uh, English teacher in Indonesia. Um, you see the, um, and somehow, although I, I would probably say that, um, that I was a bit unique in that sense, but I always approached um, the idea of uh, being a teacher there uh, as a, in a very friendly way. You know, I always treated my students um, somehow quite friendly, as opposed to um, uh, that very clear distinction between the teacher and student relationship. But uh, somehow in Indonesia, that's a very uh, big, uh, difficult thing to do because the Indonesian society is a very hierarchical one. Mm -hmm. You see, the teacher is very respected and uh, there should be a very wide gap. There's a very high power distance between the in the Iranian, uh, sorry, in the Indonesian society. So uh, when you are then uh, coming and you're being too friendly, that then leads to uh, a loss of respect for you in that particular environment because, uh, you know, they are not seeing you anymore as that, uh, you know, um, how do you say that, as that person of authority. Right. So um, in, my, in my early steps, whereas I thought that in, by being friendly, by uh, opening up uh, much to my students, I would build a better relationship and it would lead to better intercultural interactions with them. That was not so much the case because, um, you know, that's simply not uh, how the Indonesian culture really works. So uh, that was a very big uh, step and, uh, you know, trying to solve that was uh, took some time, actually. Yeah, that, that's a good point, because uh, if, if we approach the, the new culture with that open-mindedness and, and, and we enter this new environment with, let's be open, let's show the world that I'm entering, that I'm not a threat, that I'm willing to learn, that I want to befriend the new culture, um, it may actually backfire in certain circumstances. And you just described that very well. Now, um, in, a, in a culture with a, a high power distance, as you said, uh, or in other terms, that is more hierarchical than, than other cultures, how, do, how were you able to reestablish your authority as a teacher? Did you have to adjust your behavior? Did you have to be less friendly or less um, buddy-like? Did you have to be a lot more assertive? Or what did you do to, to regain that authority? Well, actually, um, that's, I think, one uh, interesting thing uh, that I would say. Uh, I would say that um, for me, uh, I have learned a lesson, which is basically I'm always striving um, to somehow integrate different behaviors uh, with each other. You know, if I would follow completely the Indonesian way of being uh, hierarchical, I would not feel like I'm myself. I would not feel authentic. So um, that wouldn't really work for me to be as a, there as a complete uh, authoritarian uh, yeah, uh, person, because that's simply not who I am. But, uh, you know, you have to know the time where you should be um, more, um, uh, where you should really be that authority. 
and where you should really assert your uh, assert your um, you know your actions, where you should assert that you are the teacher, they are the student, they have to do their job, and you know if they don't do their job, then that will lead them to consequences. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, you can also keep that friendly behavior uh, in the um, appropriate times. You know, so uh, I think uh, for an expat. Uh, that's always uh, one of the important things is uh, to um, not lose who you are while at the same time um, um, trying uh, new behaviors and adjusting your behavior and trying to find uh, ways to integrate these two uh, things and find some sort of compromise between the two of them, uh, which is, I think, is very important. Be beautifully said. For people to don't don't lose yourself in in the process of adapting to the foreign culture stay who you are and and make sure that you um, adjust your behavioral codes according to the situation and to to the circumstances that are given to you tim this is awesome thank you so much for sharing your experience i i have a feeling we'll be talking again sometime soon um tim reddit that would be nice Net. i would appreciate that timreddick.net is the blog. I hope you all visit it. Again, find it in the show notes. And um, good luck to you in Iran. I know you've got a lot of personal business to take care of, and maybe we'll talk about this in a future episode. I won't give it away here. Um, thank you for your time, Tim. It was a pleasure talking to you. And I guess in, in Australia, they would say good eye. <laughs> Thanks, Christian. It was a pleasure for me as well. I'm really looking forward to hearing more from you, and I hope we talk again. Thanks very much. Bye Appreciate bye. that. Bye-bye. Tim Reddick, the German who made it halfway around the world and now is in Tehran, Iran. You'll find most of the stuff we talked about in the show notes to this episode. Go to theculturemastery.com. In the podcast section there, you can see it. Links to Tim's social media, to his blog, to the book that we talked about. Basically to every relevant piece of information that we shared in this conversation. And as I said in the beginning, don't forget, check out the website for the language learning tool um, in the language tab. And also check out the tools section with the country navigator now. Do check it out, please. There are free or very inexpensive test versions out there. If you do need a test account for your company or your business, send me a note. We'll hook you up. We'll make it work so you can kick the tire. And as always, if you know people who should be guests on this podcast, do let me know. You know how to get a hold of me on my social media and my contact information is in the show notes. And the quickest way is get started at Culture Mastery. Till next time, Culture Guy is out for now. <laughs>